0: Sessions and sweaty summer activities are back, which means more funky smells in your clothes because sweat leaves behind bacteria that causes those hard to remove odors. Clorox Fabric Sanitizer products are ready to zap the stink out of fabrics in your home by getting rid of 99.9% of odor-causing bacteria. Eliminate odors in every load or sanitize fabrics between washes with one of our Fabric Sanitizer products. Search Fabric Sanitizer at Clorox.com to learn more. When it counts, trust Clorox. Use as directed.
1: True Crime on A&E, with groundbreaking original shows like The First 48, Cold Case Files, Accused, Guilty or Innocent, and American Justice. No
0: one brings you closer. Groundbreaking True Crime, every Thursday and Friday on A&E. Death opened the floodgates of change and of the present wave of separatism. The Front de Liberation of Québec, the FLQ, turned to violence. The idea of an independent Quebec continued to gain ground. Libre, Quebec, libre. Prime Minister Pearson stood down and an uneasy English Canada replaced him with a Québécois Federalist, Pierre Elliott Trudeau. Trudeau was expected to put an end to separatism. He was given an overwhelming mandate. <laughs> but Quebec refused to be tamed. René Lévesque formed the Separatist Parti Québécois. For many, the only hope was a unilingual Quebec where everyone, and above all immigrants, should learn and use French, and only French. Then, on October 5, 1970, the senior British Trade Commissioner, James Richard Cross, is kidnapped by the FLQ. And then, the Minister of Labour and Immigration, Pierre Laporte, is abducted. On October 15th, a huge crowd endorses the aims of the FLQ, and later that night the government brings down the War Measures Act. The next evening, Friday, October 16th, Canadians from coast to coast gather to hear two nose
2: Come on.
1: I'm going to run straight to the punchline. There were two kidnappings, and one was fatal. In October 1970, the Quebec FLQ terrorist group, the Front de Libération du Québec, first abducted British Trade Commissioner James Cross. They then went after Quebec Minister of Labour and Deputy Premier Pierre Laporte, Under captivity, Laparte was murdered and his body later found in the trunk of an abandoned car at the Saint-Hubert airport. This is who killed Teresa.
2: What I remember of
1: 1970... As uh, about six years old, and uh, we we had um we had a basement. Uh, it was like a rec room, uh, typical Montreal suburb, um, unfinished basement, concrete floor, wood paneling on the the walls. Kind of it was used as a utility room slash playroom, and on the walls were two posters large black and white posters they, they photos weren't taken by karsh but they look like karsh photos um, one was of robert kennedy who had been assassinated assassinated in 68 and the other was of pierre elliott trudeau who um in uh 67 68 you, you know he was kind of living not in obscurity but um Uh, widely unknown throughout Canada. He was a teaching, he was a professor at the University of Montreal. And he, um, along with um, uh, uh, Gérard Pelletier and uh, Jean Marchand, were wooed into the federal liberal uh, party by Lester Pearson, the prime minister, who was soon to retire. He realized he needed, or the party in order to survive, needed the the French-Québec vote. So they become known as the three wise men and they're, they're, they're brought into the, the party, into the Ottawa politics. Um, the three of them are largely inexperienced um, Marchand being the most experienced uh, politician, but uh, Trudeau speaks is, is more bilingual at that time than Marchand. So slowly uh, Trudeau becomes the rising star and what, um, became known as uh, Trudeau mania started to sweep uh, the nation. Uh, And my mother became swept up in Trudeau mania. Hence the, the larger than life poster of Pierre Trudeau uh, adjacent to Robert Kennedy in the rec room. Uh, So these guys were heroes. And then, then on the other side, you, you know, on the separatist, uh, uh, nationalist Quebec front you had uh, people like um uh René Levesque who's you, you know newly or soon to be n- newly uh elected leader of the uh, Parti du Quebecois seen as the separatist party you you have Pierre Bourgault who, who was also uh nationalist leanings um although not as hardline as the FLQ would become and uh Robert Lemieux who later became like the lawyer and chief negotiator for the FLQ M- my memory of those three in opposition to the three wise men was in the in the uh, in the in the english media television and and like in the gazette and per- particularly on television on c f c f 12 those guys were kind of really demonized i mean they were scary uh, all the film footage of them, you know, seemed to be... Like, I, I don't think I'd ever seen René Levesque when he wasn't at his most, you know, fervent and passionate and yelling. And just he just always seemed to me to be angry. It wasn't until years later that I saw that uh, René Levesque um, probably was more bilingual than any of them. I think he learned to read English and French, the age of four um but you know that was kind of all kept from us his sense of humor was was kept from us he was seen as this angry angry uh man and uh but really quite endearing uh uh you know his his nickname he's a short right the, the little guy uh, he's called the uh, tipoy which means uh, uh like um little hair is what it means in in French because he had a comb over right he was kind of baldy uh he's losing his hair so he had a comb over and um he always seemed to be smoking a cigarette he always had a cigarette in his hand right and uh I mean to this day if you go there's a statue of René Lavec in Quebec City at the uh, Assemblée Nationale Assemblée Nationale and um uh uh, the funny thing about it is uh, whoever cast the statue left like just enough room um between his fingers of his hands so that you can see, you could stick a cigarette in there and tourists people you know going to the assemblée nationale to pay their respects uh for rené to this day in quebec city um um routinely stick a a lit cigarette in in between the sculpture's fingers in in honor of René Lévesque. The FLQ, Front de Libération du Québec, uh, um, was founded in 1963. But up to that time, there had already been considerable revolutionary and terrorist activity in Quebec and throughout the world, uh, as you well know, in Cuba, in the United States, Ireland, South America, Africa, continental Europe, uh, just think uh, about our off. Red Brigade, um, the Symbionese Liberation Army and the Weather Underground in the United States, uh, 77, the Aldo Moro kidnapping by the Red Brigade. Um, uh, it's like a trip back uh, in, in time 70s terrorism so um, understand that um, while the quiet revolution was going on throughout the 60s in parallel there was all this FLQ terrorist activity also happening uh, in, uh, in Quebec um, in, in March of 1963 someone unbolted the statue of James Wolfe in Quebec City Wolfe was the British hero who defeated the French on the Plains of Abraham in 1759. So Wolfe topples from his pedestal, smashes into pieces, and everything went downhill in Quebec from there. Beginning with Molotov cocktails and then eventually graduating to dynamite bombings, the FLQ waged guerrilla warfare against English institutions in Quebec throughout the 1960s. Targets included armories and military recruitment centers, the Federal Railroad System, the Department of Revenue, mailboxes in English residential sectors of Montreal, the Montreal Stock Exchange, the Queen Elizabeth Hotel, and the home of Montreal Mayor Jean Drapeau. Though not directly as a result of FLQ uh, violence, the 1969 Murray Hill bus riots resulted um, actually in, in the destruction of uh, Mayor Jean Drapeau's uh, restaurant, uh, this very elegant restaurant called uh, Vaisseau d'Or, which was in the lower portion of the Windsor Hotel, House of Windsor, English. You can imagine why they ransacked this and why why Drapeau was seen... Although he was he was he was French, um, as really kind of a pawn and a puppet of the the Federalists uh, uh, in 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 Ottawa. So they ransack his restaurant. They de- destroy it in the Murray Hill bus riots. Uh, the Windsor Hotel is an interesting nexus point. It was at the Windsor Hotel where Pelletier, Marchand, and Trudeau met for the last time and he announced uh, his intention to um, run for the head of the liberal party of of Canada. The Windsor Hotel, I think I told you last time, I found this calendar of my sister's. Uh, My sister was there in September 23rd, 1977, for cocktails and dinner with... uh, Someone named Fred. I think Fred was a boyfriend at the time. So um, the Windsor, this this nexus uh, point. I don't know what it was like in '77. It's. I don't believe the Windsor is there. Oh, it's not. It's not there in Montreal anymore. Most of the members who comprised um, um, the uh, the core of the FLQ were not criminal masterminds. Uh, The majority of them were were teachers. In fact um and uh, their crimes throughout the 60s consisted of robberies to sustain themselves uh theft of dynamite in order to make bombs things uh, things like this and then there of course as the result of the bombings there were collateral damage which led to um by the end of the 60s um over 25 of the these these um individuals were incarcerated all of them very very for the most part, young, um, under, under the age of, of 30. And uh, long before the Cross and Laporte uh, kidnappings, there had been at least six fatalities um, as, as the result of um, FLQ terrorist activities. Most of these fatali- fatalities involved ordinary citizens, secretaries and shopkeepers going about their business, Beginning with the April nineteen sixty-three death of a night watchman, Wilfred O'Neill, who was killed when a bomb exploded outside an army recruitment station. We are now into the fiftieth anniversary year of the October Crisis, and uh, we're coming up on a. I mean, certainly there was an entire prelude in the sixties, but we're coming up on a sort of the the event. Uh, the first event that triggered everything that would happen in October very, very shortly, which I'll mention in a minute. But uh, to set the table here, uh, something that should be helpful, at the beginning of the 1970s, um, there had been three FLQ cells organized to conduct kidnappings. The first was called the Liberation Cell, and it was composed of Jacques uh, uh, Langtou, uh Jacques uh Cassel Trudel and uh, Louise uh, Langteau and Marc uh, uh, Carboneau, Pierre Seguin and Nigel Hammer. The second cell, the Charnier cell, was composed of Paul and Jacques Rose, um, Francis Semard and Bernard Lortie, and then finally there was um, there was uh, Robert Como, a uh, twenty-five year old history professor at. Uh, uh, Université du Québec à Montréal, uh, he forms the uh, Viger information cell towards the end of May 1970. Now, in February 26, which is uh, the 50th anniversary, is about, what are we, two weeks away, 1970, uh, Jacques Langteau and Pierre Marcille are arrested in a suspicious rental truck which contains a sawed-off shotgun and a basket Large enough to hold a grown man. Langto uh, has a press release in his pocket announcing the kidnapping of Moshe Golan, the uh, Israeli commercial consul in Montreal, and uh, Marcel and Langto are arraigned and released on uh, bail, and uh, they they do they disappear. They don't reappear in court. Rather than explaining. All subsequent events in the October crisis, it might be best to hear the story from the one hostage who managed to survive the grueling affair. The following are excerpts from James Cross's account of events, with some additional notes for clarification from a taped interview conducted in 1996 at Churchill College Cambridge
2: what? Oh no oh non jamais oh non oh non jamais jamais Mais tu t'es garcié sept péchés Mais...
1: October 5th was a typical bright Montreal autumn day. As I walked between the bedroom and the bathroom dressing, I heard a ring of the doorbell and I was surprised that anybody would arrive that early in the morning. My wife suggested that it was probably Hydro-Québec come to read the meter, so I took no further notice. I then heard raised voices but did not pay much attention as our maid was inclined to speak loudly sometimes to her small child. The next thing I knew, I was walking back towards the bathroom, dressed only in a shirt and underpants. A man came through from the opposite side holding a gun and said, ''Get down on the floor or you'll be fucking dead.'' I backed into the bedroom, lay on the floor, and he then made me turn over onto my face and put handcuffs on me. Our Dalmatian was sitting on the bed beside my wife and started to growl. And he told her that if she let the dog move, he would shoot it. He then called out another man who came up the stairs into the bedroom carrying a submachine gun. "'and shepherding the maid and her daughter in front of them. "'The first man then took me into the dressing room "'beyond the bathroom, put my trousers on and shoes "'and slipped a jacket over my shoulders. "'He then led me back through to the bedroom. "'My wife said, "'You must let me say goodbye to my husband "'and came over and kissed me goodbye.' They tore the phones out of the sockets beside the bed and told my wife that she must not phone anybody for an hour. I was then taken downstairs. There was a third man, also armed. We went out through the front door and there was a taxi sitting outside the house. The only other person I could see was a gardener collecting leaves on the far side of the road. I was pushed into the taxi "'and shoved down between the front and back seats "'and a rug thrown over my head. "'Then we drove for about five to ten minutes "'and stopped in what was clearly some sort of garage or workshop. "'I was taken out and made to stand against the wall "'with my eyes closed, "'and a gas mask with eyepieces painted black "'was placed over my head.' was then taken back and pushed into another car in the same position between the seats and we drove for possibly 15 to 20 minutes. We finally drew up in what was clearly the garage of a house. I was taken out, led upstairs, the handcuffs were transferred from behind my back to the front and I was put lying down on a mattress in a room where I was to spend the next 59 days. My gas mask was removed and a hood placed on my head. I asked them what their intentions were, and they said I would have to wait and see. Later that morning, they read me their manifesto, which included the demands for the release of political prisoners. If these demands were not met, I would be executed within 48 hours. On hearing this, I said, In that case, I must compose myself for death. During the whole day, the radio was on most of the time, and they were listening avidly to the various reports coming in. Sometime later in the day, following a call to a radio station, Messages from the kidnappers were found at the University of Montreal. These listed seven demands to be met, quote, in order to preserve the life of the representative of the ancient racist and colonialist British system. It gave the authorities until noon on Wednesday to submit that afternoon, the Quebec justice minister made a statement outlying the ransom demands. Included were the release of 23 political prisoners, the provision of an aircraft for their transportation to Cuba or Algeria, $500,000 in gold bars, the reinstatement of some postal drivers who had been dismissed as the result of privatization, The name of the informer who had helped the police apprehend the earlier cell, the publication of the full text of the FLQ manifesto, and the cessation of all police activities. next few days presented a picture of some confusion. I think it took authorities in both Quebec and Ottawa a little longer to recognize the seriousness of the demands and in the first instance it appeared that the Quebec government were taking the lead with Prime Minister Trudeau refusing to answer questions on the subject. Oh, I- In spite of this, the premier, Barassa announced that he was carrying on with a business promotion visit to New York on the Thursday and Friday. On the Tuesday evening, a message was delivered to a radio station which contained a personal letter from me to my wife. And repeating the demands that the FLQ requested be met in full, otherwise, we will not hesitate to do away with J. Cross. On Wednesday, there was a further communication from the FLQ, including one from me, dictated, of course, by them, asking that their demands should be met. There was still no clear response from either Quebec or federal governments. On Thursday, the first step was taken when the FLQ manifesto, a crude polemic attacking every institution in Canada and Quebec, and abuse for politicians such as Trudeau and Bourassa was read, by a, a poe faced announcer Jeff on Radio Jail, Canada's, Jail, Canada's Perchorn,
2: Thomson, television Mester, network. And Compared to this league, Rémi Popol, the whipping boy; Drapeau, the dog; Bourassa, the sidekick; and Trudeau, the queer, are mere peanuts. Are the
1: on Friday, October 9th, the Minister of Justice of asked for my kidnappers exchange? to provide proof payments, which that I was still alive and well, in a letter the containing the message which I had been asked to sign, was delivered to a radio station. Saturday the 10th, Choquette, the Justice Minister of Quebec, came on television and radio just before 6 p.m. and said that the kidnappers' demands would not be met, but they offered to provide them with safe conduct to a foreign country in return for my release. During the whole of this week, my condition was static. Uh, After the first day or two, I was allowed to sit in an armchair for most of the day, but still handcuffed. My hood was adjusted so that I could watch television during part of the day, although I never saw my captors. Arrangements were made for me to be provided with some pills for my blood pressure, for which my wife had appealed on television. Television and radio were on constantly, and members of the group were frequently going out to bring back newspapers, which they read avidly for news of their exploits. After Mr. Choquette made his statement, I asked them what they were going to do with me. They replied that they were going to hold me for a few days. Poor Bave la police, to taunt the police. In a few minutes, the news came on radio that, on Saturday, October 10th, Pierre Laporte the Minister of Labour and Deputy Prime Minister of the Quebec government had been kidnapped. He had been playing football outside his house with a young nephew when four men drove up in a car, bundled him into it and drove off. This changed the whole situation For whereas I was a virtually unknown foreign diplomat, Pierre Laporte had been a major figure in Quebec politics for the past 20 years. All attention was now focused on his fate. The next week was then concentrated on the cell holding Pierre Laporte, on the Sunday, there were three communications from the cell, including, in the evening, a long letter from Laporte to Barassa drawing attention to the number of people who were depending on him and urging that the kidnappers' demands be met. It's well to point out here that all public messages by either Laporte or me were dictated by the kidnappers, and accepted as the only means of communication with the outside world. On the Monday morning, a letter from me was discovered, and the government then proceeded to open negotiations through an intermediary named Demers. Next few days saw an astonishing rise in the support for the FLQ's demands, coming not only from old FLQ militants, but also from students and the trade unions. On Wednesday, October 14th, a message from my cell was found indicating that contact had been made between the two and that their joint demands were that the prisoners should be sent to Cuba or Algeria and thereafter Cross and Laporte would be freed. The same day, there Came an appeal from a number of leading Quebec figures, including publishers and labor leaders. While offering their support to the provincial government, they clearly favored an exchange of prisoners for the hostages. On Thursday, the 15th, Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau met with opposition leaders to seek a solution to the situation. He got no general support, and on that evening, troops were called out in support of the forces of law and order in Quebec. At this point, they were only carrying out guard duties and protection in support of the police. That evening, there was a rally at the Paul Sauve arena. Maybe the guys of the FLQ have succeeded in making us understand to a certain extent. We are going to organize ourselves intelligently, we're going to choose our own positions, and we shall overcome. I was watching the event on television, and it did seem at that point as if a very large number of people in Montreal were supporting the aims and objectives of the FLQ. In the early hours of Friday morning, the 16th, the government of Canada passed the War Measures Act, which, for the first time in peacetime, imposed a state of war in Canada. What it with all these uh, men with guns around here? Haven't you noticed? Yeah, I've noticed them. I worry you people decided to have them. What's your worry? I'm not worried, but you so seem if you're to be not worry, what's your I'm not worried? I'm I'm worried about living in a town that's uh, full of people with guns running around in Are it. Are you? Have they done anything to you? Have they pushed you around or anything? They pushed around friends of mine. Yeah? What were your friends doing? Trying to take pictures of them. Aha. Is that against
2: the law? No, not at
1: all. Immediately, a large number of FLQ sympathizers and supporters were rounded up together with a number of other people whose connection with the movement was, to say the least, slight. Friday evening, Trudeau came on television and said that the government would not give in to these demonstrations and attempts by a small group to force its will on the majority, by violence. We were listening to this on television, and immediately after he'd finished, I heard the woman in the group, presumably Louise Cassette Trudel, say, La Porte est mort. La Porte is dead. It's more to keep law and order in this society than to... Uh... Uh, be worried about uh, weak-kneed people who uh, don't like the looks of, uh, of a at, at of At any remnants. cost? At any cost? How far would you go with that? How far would you extend that? Well, just watch me. At, at, uh, the following day was reasonably quiet with no great activity that I could see. This, yeah. Then in the late evening, watching television, news came in that there was something strange happening at the Saint-Hubert airport to the east of Montreal. Shortly afterwards, one began to see the television cameras arriving on the scene. In the early hours of the morning, the trunk of a car which was parked there was broken open to reveal the body of Pierre Laporte. It was then revealed that a telephone call to a radio station earlier in the evening had given the news. Thus, the journalists arrived almost as soon as the police. The rest of that evening or early morning was chaotic. Shortly after the announcement that Laporte's body had been found, there was an announcement that my body had been found at Rawdon near Quebec, This was naturally an appalling piece of news since I feared that my wife might be watching. I wanted to get up and shake the television set and scream, I'm not dead! I'm not dead! Finally, I think, even my captors took pity on me and gave me some aspirin or something to calm me down. The following morning, they allowed me to write a letter to my wife and they opened the trunk and they said that there was indeed a man in the trunk we tried to get closer but the police wouldn't let us all we could see was some white clothes with
2: blood stains look god damn it we're not a soap opera I know and that. we're not a soap advertisement if you want this that get it somewhere else no. No. we're not
1: looking for that we're well you, you want 60
2: seconds well the guy dies our opinion oh shit. Yes. go ahead yeah.
1: The next six weeks were into a fairly steady routine. First few days, there was the drama of Pierre Laporte's funeral and the surrounding interest and excitement. Also reports of the various police raids and arrests of those suspected of FLQ sympathies. Mayor Drapo fought his municipal election and swept the opposition, suspected of FLQ sympathy, from the field. My own position sank into one of inertia. The kidnappers refused to discuss their next moves with me, but one evening I heard a number of them talking in another room and one returned to give my guard the news. I could not hear the full gist of his statement, but I clearly heard the word indefinitely. The routine was that I usually got up about ten in the morning, was allowed to wash and go to the lavatory, sometimes to shave, although the woman in the party was reluctant to allow me to do so. Then I returned to sit in the chair facing the television set and spent the rest of the day there. I would either read, watch television when they had it on, listen to the radio, or play innumerable games of patience. Another means of occupying my mind was to go over holidays or things I had done in the past. For example, I began to retrace in my mind the walk of about three-quarters of a mile which I used to take to school as a small boy. In the beginning, I could barely remember the details, but after a few weeks, I could probably have described every blade of grass on the route. Food usually consisted of toast and coffee in the morning, two pieces of toast, one with peanut butter. In the evening, there was some sort of mess, sometimes soup, sometimes a Chinese meal, or some sort of mess up. The food was not very adequate, and in fact, I lost 22 pounds in my eight weeks' incarceration. After the excitements and dramas of the first two weeks in captivity culminating in the terrible night when Laporte's body was found. The remaining six weeks were very much a period of stagnation. I followed the same routine, getting up late, watching television, reading or playing patience during the day and going to bed very late at night after the last television program had finished. My selection of reading was a curious mixture on On the one hand, there were the revolutionary manuals such as Vellier's On the Wrongs of the French-Canadians, The Wretched of the Earth by Franz Fanon, the Algerian psychologist, who was a guru of the Algerian revolution, and a few miscellaneous works on the revolutionaries of the 1960s. On the other hand, there was a very good selection of early Agatha Christie's in French, and it was surprising how good many of them were to read again. One curious book they supplied me with was an early work by Jules Verne about the French-Canadian patriots of 1837, I believe that, in addition to this science fiction work, he also went through an anti-British period when he wrote works about British imperialism in Canada, India, and Ireland. In the first two weeks, I had been interested in their political ideas and their objectives, and we had had a certain amount of discussion. But after Laporte's death, I felt that I no longer wanted to pursue these subjects and we really sank into our two solitudes. I had already adjusted my mind to getting through the period up to Christmas and was beginning to think that I might possibly have to last through the whole winter. At the beginning of December there seemed to be a little more activity around with people coming and going and discussions about the amount of money they had which suggested that they were finding it difficult to keep going. The second December was a day much as usual. I noticed that there did not seem to be so many people around, but this was not unusual, as they sometimes left for a few hours. This evening they came and put handcuffs on me, which was the first time this had happened for a number of weeks. I asked what had happened, and they told me that the police knew where I was and had arrested two of their comrades who had gone out during the day and not returned. Later that evening, all the lights in the apartment went off and at that I was taken from my chair, led into the passageway between the rooms and handcuffed to the door handle. In this extremely uncomfortable position where I could neither sit Nor stand I spent the rest of the night they clearly expected an attack during the night and on one occasion began to compose a message of defiance to be thrown out the window when they had finished drafting this somebody said we must add our slogans nous vaincrons meaning we shall win at this absurdity of three men, defying the whole of Canadian security services, we all burst out laughing. Dawn came. I was allowed to stand up and move around the corridor. They remained on the alert. At some time in the morning, the negotiator, appointed by the federal government, Mr. Mergler, a lawyer, who had represented FLQ members in the past, came and knocked on the door. There was considerable dismantling as they had wired the door with explosives against attack. He came in and then followed two hours of negotiation. The government proposed that we should all go to the expo site ...where a building had been designated as the Cuban Consulate for the day. I would remain there under the supervision of the Cuban Consul... ...while the kidnappers and their families were flown to Cuba. As soon as they arrived in Cuba, I would be released. They were extremely suspicious of all this... ...and suggested that as soon as they got outside the building... They would be mowed down. Mr. Merbler and I pointed out that they could hardly do this if I was among them. Finally, they agreed, and towards 1 p.m., we went down into the basement and climbed into the battered old car in which I presume I had arrived two months before. The back of the car was covered in newspaper to prevent a shot being taken. I got in the back with Langto and Carboneau, the taxi driver and Seguin were in the front. When we got outside into the bright sunlight, it was an astonishing sight with hundreds of police and soldiers lining the streets. Murgler climbed into the front of the car and we started this terrific ride behind police across Montreal. The back door of the car was shaky, and at times, as we went round corners, I was worried Langto would fall out, so I hung on to him. Finally, we crossed the long bridge to the expo site, pulled up outside the then-designated Cuban consulate. Bill Ashford, my information colleague, was there waiting for me, and we went into the building. I turned to one side, my kidnappers to the other, and I never saw them again. I had to remain in the consulate then until about midnight. I first talked to my wife in Switzerland, and then to the High Commissioner in Ottawa. I spoke later to Mr. Trudeau and to Mr. Barassa, the Prime Minister of Quebec. Food arrived. Unfortunately, nobody had thought to provide any drink. Great deprivation after two months without alcohol. At 6, the kidnappers left, their families having been collected at the airport. And then Mr. Choquette arrived. Then my daughter came. Then later in the evening, Mr. Barasa, the Prime Minister. The following day, I had a long session with the police recording my impressions of the kidnappers. On Saturday morning, early, we drove to the airport. I made a short speech before flying to England together with my daughter. On the plane, I gave a long description of the whole affair to Jim Davey, one of Mr. Trudeau's aides, but alas, he had failed to switch his tape recorder on. When we landed at London, my wife came on board to meet us and we descended to meet the press. After a brief interview, we went by car to Dorney Wood, the Foreign Secretary's country residence, where we spent a quiet weekend. <laughs> couple of things as we wind down here. Um, so, Cross built a mind map in order to keep his sanity, like a la Sherlock, right? He uh, he, he constructs uh, this mind map of his path home from school <laughs> in order to preserve his sanity, which is extraordinary. The Saint-Hubert Airport where the body of uh, Pierre Laporte was discovered. If you're wondering, yes, that is the same airport adjacent to where the bodies of Diane and Michel Corbet were found. It's about a block away. In fact, um, the hideout where Paul and Jacques Rose uh, uh, held uh, Pierre Laporte in captivity was was in Longay, Saint Hubert, they're adjacent to each other, it was within blocks, uh two streets over approximately from where um Dandier and uh, Mario Corbet lived. And and even further in a in an earlier podcast last year we talked about the, the murder of the Californian, the American Margaret Peggy Coleman. Now, that occurred in, in 1970, and as you you rem- remember, very briefly, uh, the authorities considered whether it was the Rose brothers who murdered Coleman, uh, because uh, that murder occurred just months prior to the abduction of Laporte, um, and her body was, was found, again, very, very close to that uh, Longay area I think I think more important I think it's very unlikely that um, the uh, Charnier cell had anything to do with Margaret Coleman's murder uh, I think more significantly the reason that case has gone unsolved since 1970 is that the police were so absorbed in the October crisis um, the events from October all the way through uh, the release of Cross in December—that um, that investigation never really gained footing because all resources were attuned uh, to the FLQ. The the manifesto that was read on the air—I mean, it's extraordinary. For years, years and years, uh, the FLQ was um, trying to get that. Uh, published in the papers or read on air and uh, they come right out and they call the Prime Minister of Canada a queer, right? Trudeau the queer. the Trudeau the thief, uh, which is extraordinary. Um, you know, um, it's often said that it, you know, although Trudeau, Trudeau invokes the War Measures Act, uh, which brings the troops to Montreal and Quebec, it was actually the, the, um, the prime minister, sometimes called the premier of Quebec, Robert Barassa, who requested it first. So there's, there's a lot of back and forth about who's actually responsible for that. Um, I, I think technically it's true it was Barassa who requested it of the federal government. But I don't think Pierre Trudeau, he probably didn't need much of a push in order to get there. Two days before Christmas, December 23rd, 1970, Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau announces that all troops stationed in the province will be withdrawn from Quebec by January 5th, 1971. This is shortly after uh, James Cross's release. And then on December 28th, the three members of the Chenier cell, still at large, Paul Rose... Jacques Rose and Francis Simard, are arrested after being found hiding in a tunnel in a Saint-Luc rural farming community 20 miles southeast of Montreal. That's the Peggy Coleman area. Later, the three of them would be charged with the kidnapping and murder of Pierre Laporte. Paul Rose had been vacationing in the United States, I believe in Louisiana, in the fall of 1970, although he had, I think he'd been in Tennessee as well. You can actually get his FBI records um, pretty publicly available online now. I think the statute of limitations uh, ran out. So he's vacationing in 70, when he got word that James Cross had been kidnapped, and he quickly cut short that vacation and he hurried back to Montreal. And he basically improvised the abduction of Pierre Laporte. He's on the front lawn. He's playing football with his nephew. He's hastily uh, escorted into a car, taken to uh, the Longuey area. Um, The versions of Laporte's uh, death have changed over the years. Uh, At once, it was deemed an accident. They, quote, accidentally strangled Laporte with a religious chain around his neck when he tried to escape. But then later, Rose and Simard basically fell all over themselves, claiming that they had murdered Laporte, and they would gladly do it again. Still later, Rose claimed that the murder was the result of frustration after authorities had basically cut off communication between the various, uh, the three FLQ cells, in this version, Rose blames the establishment for Laporte's death. The outcomes from the October crisis have always been unresolved and less than satisfactory. What did anyone learn from this? Jacques Trudel and his wife, uh, Louise Langteau, who were part of the group that abducted uh, James Cross, they negotiated safe passage to Cuba, and they lived there for four years. In 1977, uh, René Lavec uh, announced he was seeking a pardon for Trudel and Lancteau. They returned to Montreal in 1978. For the kidnapping of James Cross, they received five years on probation. They served two. Trudel became a successful screenwriter and filmmaker, eventually receiving financial assistance from Telefilm Canada. For the murder of Pierre Laporte, Francis Simard was given a life sentence but was paroled in 1982. Jacques Rose served even less time. He was paroled in 1978. At the 1981 Parti Québécois Convention, Jacques Rose was given a standing ovation when he approached the mic to speak. Lavec shook his head in disgust, never wanting his party controlled by extreme voices. Paul Rose, the one who was vacationing in the States, served 13 years. By the mid-80s, he was out attempting to resume his teaching career in Montreal. Rose applied for work at an elementary school just blocks from where Pierre Laporte's widow was living. In a 1978 interview with the tabloid police. Paul Rose was without remorse. I regret nothing, 1970, the abductions, the prison, the suffering, nothing. I did what I had to do. Placed before the same circumstances today, I would do exactly the same thing. I will never deny what I did and what happened. It was not youthful indiscretion. My experience... Uh, with the FLQ slash October crisis, uh, it's just my observation that y- you in Quebec you cannot remain agnostic about uh, the events of uh, October 1970. People in Quebec expect you to take a side. My own my own thoughts about it have evolved over the years. I'm I'm now a long way from that basement in the West Island of Montreal with those black-and-white posters. There's a, um, a sketch comedy series in Quebec. It's called Bye-Bye. It's basically a year-end New Year's Eve roundup of funny skits that summarize events of the previous year. Bye-Bye 1970 is memorable for this sublime bit by um, uh, Olivier Guimont. It's called uh, Olivier Guimont, A West Mount. And I will post it on the uh, website. And um, Guimont uh, was a tremendously gifted physical comedian in Quebec. I think, uh, think Charlie Chaplin. This, this sketch opens outside and Affluent home on New Year's Eve. Guimond, dressed as an army officer, standing watch on the front entrance. It's snowing, it's cold, he's bored. Glancing Hello? at his watch, he calls into Hello, his uh, supervisor. Oui,
2: ici, uh, Caporal Olivier. Oui, oui je suis toujours à Westmont. devant oui, maison, Monsieur Thompson. Oui, chef. Uh, down, chef. Uh, uh, you,
1: uh, I'm still at Westmount. Uh, uh, chef, can you call my family and wish them Happy New Year? Oh, and uh, my little ones too, eh? Merci, chef. Then out stumbles the rich English owner of the manor, drunk, dressed in a disheveled tuxedo, his wife urging him to come back inside. It's too cold. No, no, I want to chat with him. With him? Oh. In very bad French, he offers Guimont a nip from his bottle of scotch. Some physical comedy follows, some funny stumbling, you know, from getting drunk. The English millionaire asks the French soldier guarding his home where he's from. D'où es-tu,
2: toi Moi, je viens but, uh, j'ai de Saint-Henri. Saint-Henri. Whoa wow. oh, oh, yes, i decide. never been there, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> Saint-Henri,
1: yeah,
2: where,
1: yeah.
2: Where Saint-Henri. where is it? Uh, just en bas, en bas, regarder direct en bas. Oh, yes, right down there. Yeah, où
1: c'est pas du miel là-dedans. Saint-Henri. Where is it? juste en bas. Direct <laughs> en bas. He points down. Ah, yes, right down there. Ah, there's no light down there. At the end of the sketch, uh, Mr. English returns to his safe, warm home, and Mr. Québécois continues his sentry, protecting Mr. English in the evening cold. Guimont carries the skit with such a spirit of humanity, never has... The Quebecois condition in the 1970s been expressed quite so eloquently. This is who killed Teresa.
2: Je m'en fous. Je m'en vais dans
1: le... Music today, in part, mostly from the brilliant, brilliant Quebecois artist. Calling him um, a musical artist does not do him service. He's something of a performance artist, uh, um, psychedelic genius, uh, actor, uh, entrepreneur, uh, Robert Charlebois. Um, and remember when we were in the last episode, playing all that English-influenced pop. Charlebois came out of the late '60s, um, just and and totally changed uh, the, the Quebec music scene
2: um
1: intensely patriotic um just a, 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 there's clearly a lot of traditions in his music that may sound kind of today to our ears, uh quaint uh, Clearly a lot of Elvis and Charlebois, uh, a lot of John Lennon, a lot of Bob Dylan. Um, and, and very much like a Bob Dylan who was kind of rebelling against, uh, you know, Woody Guthrie, Charlebois was at the same time taking influences uh, from someone like uh, Felix Leclerc and then changing it. Um, they were not that different. In, in fact, I think they both covered... Uh, the same poem by um, uh, Arthur uh, uh, Rimbaud in a in a song, but um, you know to confuse uh, often, uh, Charlebois gets compared to like in France, Johnny Holiday. Uh, Charlebois is nothing like Johnny Holiday in 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 any respect, um, and uh, it, to just uh, he, he wrote a lot of his uh, lyrics, but. Uh, some of his lyrics were written by, you know, Quebec poets. Um, and uh, if you're going to run his lyrics through, like, Google Translator or something, good luck. Because um, his his use of language, um, I, I mean, it's sometimes called um, uh, joel like a slang. I think that is even a disservice. Uh, It's just so inventive, percussive. Um, There are are elements of hip-hop in the late 60s from this guy that are just incredible. Um, You might know Charlebois because, uh, as I said, he's an entrepreneur. He was one of the early investors, um, initiators of the microbrewery Unibrew, which eventually got uh, sold to Sleeman and then to... uh, a uh, Japanese beer manufacturer um that's my I growing up really I mean I it was hard to, to grow up in Montreal and not be aware of Charlebois but I never really got it um I still don't get it except that uh, I would say late last year I I really made it um a focused effort to listen to his music particularly there's a compilation album called Quebec Love That is from his late 60s period, that is absolutely extraordinary. I I mean, most English growing up in Montreal knew Charlebois. There was a song called, um, we kind of went, uh, I'm a a frog, you're a frog, kiss kiss me, and I'll I'll turn into a prince prince suddenly. You know, there's this video of Charlebois in the mid 70s (laughs) walking around downtown Montreal and a pair of swim flippers. It was really, really bizarre. I think it's the only time he's ever sung in English. Uh, it wasn't until later that I learned, you know, all his other music. We played it on the outro from the Jane Cross piece. That song, Lindbergh, um, is absolutely brilliant. Um I'll I'll tack it on at the end of the episode here today. Uh, Lindbergh is, is some some consider it um, the greatest Quebecois song ever written, pop song ever written. I, I that's not far enough. Um, I'd put uh, Sh- uh, Robert uh, Charlebois Lindbergh right alongside uh, uh, the Lightfoot's uh, "Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald." Anything by Joni Mitchell or Bruce Coburn easily, easily, easily. We'll be back next time with part three of the October Crisis. What, you think we're finished? We're not done. Part three, FLQ October Crisis. If you like us, um, please uh, tell a friend, share it on social media, give us a nice rating on the wherever you're listening. Uh, I don't know, Podbean, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud. Uh, follow us on social media uh, on Twitter. I'm at Justice Guy at J U S T U S G U Y. The Twitter handle proper for the podcast is at Teresa Allure, at T-H-E-R-E-S-A-A-L-L-O-R-E. There is a Facebook page dedicated to the podcast, which is Teresa Allure, Who Killed Teresa, the podcast, and the website, always, I will post um, all kinds of interesting photos and texts um, from today's podcast at teresaallore.com T-H-E-R-E-S-A-A-L-L-O-R-E I'll post a live version of uh, Lindbergh um, um, performed by uh, Charlebois um, as well. There's a documentary I'll post um, on the FLQ crisis from the NFB uh, by Robin Spry. It was made in 1973. Uh, It's called Action, the Quebec October Crisis of 1970s really good stuff Um, there's also an interesting um, press conference with James Cross uh, speaking after two months of captivity I'll also put that on the website, that's it we're over an hour here, this has been Who Killed Teresa, and uh, as we go out um, one more Charlebois song Uh, this is uh, Les Ailes de, uh, de Nange um, I believe it's the wings of an angel. Uh, it's inspired by a, a motorcycle trip he took with the Hells Angels in Quebec City. Um, great song, little play on words with the uh, Hells, Hells, uh, Hells. Um, uh, les ailes d'un ange. Maybe it's that. Okay. Euh, qui t'irait à euh, ta raison euh, je chante à et euh, bon week-end bye bye
2: c'est joli mélodie j'ai passé belle nuit à Québec en tout cas de sang avec des beaux bêtes. j'ai passé belle nuit à Ottawa en tout cas sang En tenant dans mes bois, j'ai pensé une belle nuit à Toronto. Mais si je me rappelle bien, ça ferma un petit peu trop tôt dans Yon-Boranto. Je suis un Hells Angels à pied, je roule à pied sur du papier. I eat hot dogs, but I du thé. I'm a Satan's choice raté. Pour faire like the vrais I'm a des beaux vieux i Je suis un bon de bonne famille. I'm a boss, a boss, a boss, Et quand je fonce vers la lune C'est ben en Volkswagen Avec ma brune J'aurais trop sur un chopper Avec Aline pour Vuxapine Avec Thérèse, fraise contre fraise faux pas à ça oh! Si j'avais les ailes d'un ange Je partirais pour Si j'avais des lumières sur mon bac, je partirais pour Québec. Si j'avais plus de gosoline, je monterais toutes les belles collines. Quand la noirceur sera venue, j'allumerais les lumières pour ma vie. Et je roule, dans la nuit. So when the twilight falls on the heights, I will light my lights for my sight. Et je J'ai pensé une belle nuit à Québec, en décalé sans avec des Les beaux becs. J'ai pensé une belle à Ottawa, en décalé sans en tenant dans mes voiles. J'ai pensé une belle nuit à Toronto, mais si je me rappelle bien ça ferme un petit peu trop tôt, oh oui mais. J'avais les aider de notre part sur le bout. Québec Québec
0: Gym sessions and sweaty summer activities are back, which means more funky smells in your clothes because sweat leaves behind bacteria that causes those hard-to-remove odors. Clorox fabric sanitizer products are ready to zap the stink out of fabrics in your home by getting rid of 99.9% of odor-causing bacteria. Eliminate odors in every load or sanitize fabrics between washes with one of our fabric sanitizer products. Search fabric sanitizer at clorox.com to learn more. When it counts, trust Clorox. Use as directed.